the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphrax said, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty Lord, we come before you humbly acknowledging, Lord, our own finite minds cannot grasp the infiniteness of your wisdom, knowledge, understanding revealed in your word. And as we come to a difficult text like this, like a genealogy, O oh Lord, we realize we need wisdom and insight into your word. And I pray, Father God, that we would not merely breeze over this passage because it is your word, but understand what it is you're trying to communicate to us. We pray, O oh dear God, that you would please open our hearts and minds today to receive from you that which you would want us to know. And we pray, dear God, that you would anoint, indeed anoint my mind and my heart and my lips as the minister today. Use me as a vessel of honor to bring you glory, praise, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought I'd read through the genealogy another time. No, I'm only kidding. But the genealogies are there. They're in the Bible, and they're there for a reason. And they have significance. And today we're going to look at that in a few moments. But I want to start off by just kind of bringing us into a greater understanding of where I'm going today. And with that said, you know, today we, we are um, gearing up later on. I know the United States is going to celebrate or watch the Super Bowl later on, whether you enjoy football or not. I know it's a big game. I know it's going to be um, a big contest. There's another big contest this year that's taken place, and that is the presidential election, which we have every four years, whether you like it or not, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are going to be running against each other again. Make no mistake about it, there will be a lot of emotions going into this. In fact, I am praying that God would show mercy to us because I expect that whoever loses this election will not walk away quietly, and we are certainly living in very difficult times. But what does it mean when we have an election? It means that Every four years, whether it's the president or every two years for our congressional representatives, we live in a democratic republic where we get to choose those who represent us. And those representatives go from the most local degree, whether you're town supervisor or you're mayor or city council or town council, to a board of education. Uh, we have assemblymen in the state senate. We have uh, senators in the state senate that represent our districts here in New York state and we have also federal uh, congressional representatives who represent us on the con federal level we have uh, two state senators per state who represent us in the halls of congress in the higher chamber in the highest office of the land the president of the United States represents the entire nation not just to uh, here in America but globally and internationally is the federal head and representative of the United States. The bottom line is when we have an election, whether you like who won the election or not, or whether 
you agree with them or not, they are chosen and they are affirmed to be the leader of the country. And in democratic republics, when you elect a leader, whether you like that person or not, their policies have implications and we are to obey that those implications whether we like it or not. Uh, we are, in a sense, under our federal head and the decisions of a federal head uh, will affect us whether we like it or not. For example, if the United States chooses to go to war with another nation, we do not get a vote in that. Uh, the people we elect to lead us get the vote in that. They choose, they decide. Um, for example, as we see Vladimir Putin as a dictator and strong arm of Russia, if he decides to go to war with uh, a nation like Ukraine, uh, the citizens have no choice and the army goes to war because they have a federal head. Why do I bring all this up? Because this concept of federalism is not merely political, it's theological. And those of us of a Reformed background and persuasion understand that just as we have a federal head in the uh, a sphere of government, this is rooted in biblical theology because we have a federal head of the human race. And there are two federal heads of the human race. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And when, and when we look at federalism, we have to look back to Adam because Adam was created by God, he had no mother, he had no father. He was created out of the dust of the ground and God breathed life into him and made him the vice regent of the planet Earth and said, I am making you in my image. He took a rib out of his side, made woman, and said, you shall rule the earth in my stead and made them vice regents. Adam was the first human created and as the first human created was the federal head of the human race. And all of his decisions have had direct implications and effects on all of humanity. And the greatest of that is that Adam, who was in covenant with God, and the simple covenant was to eat of all the fruit in the garden that you see and behold, but there's one tree you shall not eat. You shall not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat of the fruit therein, you shall die. That was God's fruit. And when Adam reached out and grabbed that fruit and he ate he sinned against God and death came upon him. A spiritual death, alienation from God. Him and his wife had experienced what it was to be alienated from God, to fear God, to hide from God. And he brought death not only upon him and his wife, but upon his children and posterity through all generations. Let me put it to you biblically, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. I want you to hold that thought for a moment. In Adam, all die. Death passed through Adam to all of us. That death is the death of sin. It's, it's spiritual death. It says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 that we are all, we were all dead in transgressions and sin. That is original sin that was imputed and credited to us from the moment we were conceived. 
We were conceived in our mother's womb in sin. When we came out, nobody had to teach us to sin. We already had the nature to sin. And the minute we broke the God's law for the first time, we became guilty transgressors. And in Adam, we have all sinned and fallen short. And so he is our federal head. As the federal head of the human race, we are under Adam, we are under death, we are under sin, and we are under judgment. And so there was a necessity for a new federal head, a new uh, person who would, who would have a, a, a headship over the human race. The first son of God, Adam, failed. But the true son of God, the one who was to come, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Do you remember in the garden in chapter 3 when, um, when Adam and Eve were confronted by God in their sin and God confronted Adam and confronted Eve and ultimately confronted Satan and in Genesis 3.15 we see the first preaching of the gospel when God tells the serpent that the seed of the woman, she will bear a, a seed and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the head of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. This was the first preaching of the gospel which foresaw the time when, when that seed, which is Jesus Christ, would come into this world and destroy the works of the devil. As it is told to us in Scripture, he would, he would render the Satan impotent. He came to destroy the human race, Satan, but Christ would redeem it. He is the second Adam, the better Adam. He is the true Adam. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who place their trust in him are now under his federal headship. This concept of federalism is important because we have to understand that you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. So what does this mean and what does the scripture here have in relation to this? Let me explain. First of all, Jesus is the beloved son. Jesus is the beloved son. Going back to his baptism in verse 21, it says, when the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized and was praying and the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form and like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'm sorry, pardon me, put that other mic on. The voice from heaven was heard not only by John the Baptist, but all who were there. It was a miraculous event. God spoke from heaven indeed to demonstrate and declare his love and his affection and his approval of his son. No greater moment than when a father would be proud of his son than when the father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Christ is both loved by God the Father, and he is, and Christ is pleasing to the Father. He is a well-pleasing son. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I always do what's pleasing to the Father. Jesus never deviates from the Father's plan. He is the perfect son. And so we see here this, this un, unfolding of God giving his witness. God the Father speaking from heaven and declaring in his witness that Jesus is his son. Now, God does not speak from heaven often. We see it in Mount Sinai when God spoke from heaven and the foundations of Mount Sinai shook and the people trembled of fear. But when we see uh, this appearance here in uh, Luke's gospel, 
at Jesus' baptism, which both Matthew, Mark, and John all testify of God speaking from heaven, there were two other occasions where God spoke from heaven recorded in the Bible. The first one was, or the second one rather, was in the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a couple of years later during the public ministry of Jesus. The Lord would withdraw up to the mountain with Peter and James and John. And while they were praying uh, there, suddenly Jesus was transfigured into his glorious appearance. And with him was Moses and Elijah and and Peter and John and James wake up and they behold this and they're terrified. And they fall down and they say, well, Lord, it's, it's good that we're here. We should build tabernacles for you. And Moses and Elijah, they, they had this grand vision. Suddenly, Jesus was transformed from the lowly uh, man from Galilee to the glorious Son of God. And we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 35 through 36, what took place at that moment. It says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one about anything that had happened to them. God spoke from heaven again and said, This is my son. Listen to him. Obey him. Listen to what he has to say. He's my chosen one. Oh, what words couldn't be more clearer. We listen to so many people. We listen to Uh, uh, We listen to the the people of the world that want to give us unsound advice. We listen to uh, um, the the secular voices that we hear on television. Uh, We listen to the voices in our head. But oh, that we need to listen to Jesus. Listen to Christ. Listen to God. God has spoken from heaven and he's saying to us, listen to my son. There was another time in John's Gospel, chapter 12, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the same time that he would be betrayed, and he was praying out loud in front of all the people. He says in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Again, the Father spoke from heaven. And it says the crowd stood there and heard it. And as they heard it, it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. That is an interesting thing. This has come for your sake, not mine. Three times God the Father spoke from heaven concerning his Son. It is not for Jesus' sake. It is for your sake and my sake. It is for our sake that we would know that there is no other name under heaven which men must be saved. It is for our sake that we know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. It is for our sake that we would know he is the eternal son of God. And if we have anything we want to know about God, we need to go to Jesus. We do not need to go to Muhammad. We do not need to go to Moses. We do not need to go to Buddha. We need to go to Jesus Christ. And the father testifies on his son's behalf in the hearing of mere mortals. Why do we question so much? Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? Our faith is shaken. We read the Bible sometimes and I'm not sure if this is really true. Why do we cast doubt on God? Look in Hebrews chapter 1. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, I like the King James Version, in diverse ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Oh, Lord, God has spoken to us. And everything that Jesus has spoken and has communicated to his disciples has been recorded to us in the New Testament. 1 John 5, 9 says this. Listen, listen closely. If we receive the testimony of men, The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. Whoever believes the son of God has this testimony himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. If you question and do not believe the testimony of God, you are calling God a liar. And there's a lot of people I can call a liar because I catch them in their lies. I can call myself a liar. May God be found true. May every man be found a liar. But dare we never call God a liar. Dare we never say, no, God, you are not telling us the truth. Satan is a liar. God is not a liar. Satan was the one in the garden who said, did God really say? God always tells us the truth, whether we receive it or not. And the truth is this, if you have the son, you have life. God gave us his only son. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when he was baptized, he submerged himself in that water to identify with lost humanity so that all those who would believe in him He would become our representative. He would go to that cross and bear our sins and die in our place. And so our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. He dealt with our sin. He put to death the death of Adam. And he was raised to new life to give victory to all those who put their faith in him. That's the good news of the gospel. If you have the son, you have life. If you do not have the son, you do not have life. That is the truth. And if you don't believe it, you're calling God a liar. Do you believe in the testimony of God concerning his son? Well, I can tell you this. You can cast doubt on many things in life, but do not cast doubt on God. There's one thing God cannot do. He cannot lie because he's not a man that he should lie. God speaks the truth. 1 Peter 1.16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is not merely uh, like Peter, John, and Paul, the apostles who wrote the New Testament. They're not merely giving us cleverly devised myths and fables, but they were eyewitnesses. Notice what he says in verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and listen, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. 
In other words, Peter's saying, you, you, you doubt me? Listen, we were there. We heard God's voice. This tells us that not only is the veracity of this event uh, validated by eyewitnesses, but that if Peter himself heard it and was given the directed command by Christ to go and preach his word and his teaching, that we ought to listen to him. The apostles didn't appoint themselves. Jesus appointed them. And the apostolic witness that is brought to us in the New Testament can be trusted. Well, the Father's testimony of Jesus is nothing new. What he declared at Jesus' baptism was simply declaring to the world what was always true in heaven. And that is, the Son is beloved and brings pleasure to the Father. There is no deeper affection that the Father has than he has for his Son. And he wants us to know how much he loves him so that we could love him too. Well, now that we see that this is crystallizing, Luke has been bringing us from the first chapter all the way up here to to demonstrate us that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We've been led up to this point through, through Jesus' birth narrative, through the miracles of the birth of John the Baptist, through Jesus, right up to his baptism. And, and we see that even in this, there's a declaration that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. There's another part to this that's really important to realize is that Jesus is also a human being. The virgin birth was the first evidence of that, that Christ came into this world. He was, Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Christ. He was a real human being. The humanity of Christ is just as important as his deity. And now Luke pivots to focus on the genealogy. And in that genealogy, he shows us the humanity of Jesus. Genealogies are important. In fact, knowing your family tree has become very much something that is, uh, uh, people are interested in today. Louis Gossett Jr. has a television program on PBS where he meets with different celebrities and they go back into people's family trees to discover their background. And in and and some of the cases, it's really interesting to find out what the background of your family tree is. If you really want to know more about your genealogy, go on the website 23andMe, and uh, they could do research and you could pay a certain price and they will uh, give you a long list of your ancestors and where you come from. I never did this. My mom did it not too long ago and my mom discovered that her father, who uh, we just were assumed was Italian because he came from Italy, turned out he was Greek. He's from, go, go back in his roots, he was actually Greek in origin. So I'm, I'm Greek before you today. <laughs> Part Greek, at least. Uh, But you never know what you'll find in your background, right? Because people moved around and migrated the planet uh, through different empires and different colonizations. And so who knows uh, the background? But, But in Judaism, knowing your genealogy is really important. You know, God had the 12 tribes of Judah inherit the land of Canaan and, 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 and all of those 12 tribes were allotted plots of land. And, and your land that you were given with your family, it, it, it was yours for life. But remember, there were two dispersions, two uh, expulsions of uh, first the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. When the people came back, 
The records were messed up. Land was lost. They were under Roman occupation. But there were certain records that were kept in the temple that had not been destroyed. At the very minimum, the records of knowing who was of the Levitical order, because you had to be a Levite to be a priest. No man could be a priest without being a Levite. And also the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, which were the two tribes of the southern kingdom. And clearly, as God had promised, the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. It would be important to keep the records of those who were the Jews. And that's where we get the term Jew from, from Judah, which was a combination of Jew, um, people of the tribe of Judah and people of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and so genealogies matter. If there was any genealogy that really mattered, it would be the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you go back in the Old Testament, records, accurate records were kept of genealogies, and, and two gospel writers, both Matthew and Luke, give us a genealogy. And it matters. However, and I say this however, uh, if you read the genealogy of Matthew and you read the genealogy of Luke, you're going you're gonna to find a problem. They don't match. There's discrepancies. They're, they're different. Um, there's at least 40 names that are different uh, between the two genealogies. Now, now when you uh, deal with skeptics and critics of Christianity, they see that. What's the first thing they say? Aha, we got you. Your Bible is full of errors, and you believe it. See, not even the two genealogies match up. It's, it's the wonderful aha moment for the skeptic. But, you know, we, we, we need to slow down a little bit and say, okay, well, if there is a discrepancy, um, you know, we need to examine it more closely. We should defer to the advice of scholar Francis Quarles, who said this, and it's poetic, if two evangelists shall seem to vary, be on discourse, they're diverse, not contrary. One truth doth guide them both, one spirit doth direct them, doubt not to believe them both. So what do we know the discrepancies are? Well, the two genealogies, the big discrepancy is that that Jesus has two different grandfathers. Now, we all have two different grandfathers, right? I have two different grandfathers. I have my mom's father and my father's father. But there's a difference. Jesus didn't have an earthly father, right? God is his father. And so, and so we are only told about Joseph, both in, in both um, uh, genealogies, both in Luke's genealogy and in Matthew's genealogy, the connection of these two grandfathers is through Joseph. Matthew tells us that Jacob was Joseph's father, and Luke tells us that Heli was Joseph's father. So we, we have two grandfathers that are both connected to Joseph. So somewhere there's a mistake. Now, now while Matthew, and here's the next thing that's different. While Matthew starts with Abraham and works forward to Jesus, uh, Luke starts with Jesus and works backward, and he bypasses uh, Abraham, he goes back to Noah, and he goes back all the way to Adam, the son of God. And that's because they're asking two different questions, right? Uh, uh, Matthew, who is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, is asking the question, who is the next in line to be the Davidic king? Who is the Jewish Messiah, who has a rightful claim to be the king of uh, Israel, who is David's descendant. There's a, a legal claim to that. And so he starts with Abraham to show the, uh, the promise of Abraham right down to David and right down to Jesus. Whereas Luke is asking a different question. 
Luke is asking, who is Jesus' father? Who is, who, who, what family does he belong to? And he's tracing it backwards, and he goes all the way to Adam to show that he belongs to the entire human race. They're asking two different questions. Matthew speaking to the Jews. Luke is speaking to the Gentiles. And so we see that there are two ways of resolving this. The first way to resolve this is to say that Matthew and Luke are both recording the family tree of Joseph. That would be the, the superficial way of looking at it. And that's to say um, that, that they're both recording two different variations or vantage points of, of Joseph's lineage. Uh, Matthew has given us the legal bloodline to uh, David and and that um, Luke is giving us the biological bloodline. Now, why is this a possible scenario? And that is because, like I said, Luke is more interested with the biological connection, and Matthew's more interested with the legal claim to the role of Messiah. Now, if that's the case, we know just as well as anyone, if you have any insight in historical understanding of, of monarchies, is sometimes you skip generations or you skip people uh, sometimes you have a daughter and you have to go to your brother's son to have a king. Or, or in the case of like Queen Elizabeth II, who just recently passed away, um, her husband, when he was alive, would not become the king if she passed away because he was not birthed into the royal family. King Charles is now the king, and, and now he's uh, uh, sick with cancer, and his son William will, will come to the throne. Uh, but if you look back throughout history, there are times when certain Relatives are skipped and certain generations are skipped. Those are the legal lines to the monarchy and the dynasty. And it doesn't always meet up with the biological line. So that's one possible explanation, is that through Joseph, because Joseph is the, the legal father of Jesus, right? He's not the biological father. He's the legal father of Jesus. That through Joseph, Christ would have a legal claim to the throne of David and so, but yet there's a different biological line. Uh, while that may seem like a good explanation, I am not convinced. I think there's another explanation. And the next solution is where I stand. And that is that the Heli, who was mentioned in Luke, is not the father of Joseph. But that Heli is actually the father of Mary. That that. Luke is tracing Jesus' biological line through Mary, not through Joseph, because Jesus is actually biologically connected to Mary, not to Joseph. Well, there's many reasons to come to this conclusion, and I'll give you some of them. Number one, Luke knows more about Mary than any of the gospel writers. He writes more about Mary than any of the gospel writers. We have more insight to Mary, knowing her background, knowing who she is and how she discovered that she would be the Messiah's mother and her Magnificat. I mean, Luke must have spent hours interviewing Mary and learning so much data about her family, about her, her experiences. And he doesn't tell us everything, but Luke has more insight to Mary than anyone else. Secondly, if he is tracing Jesus' biological birthright, he has to do it through Mary. Jesus, Joseph has no relationship to Jesus whatsoever, biologically speaking. But more importantly, as you look at the verse, it says 
Joseph, who was supposed to be the father of Jesus. In other words, he is not. It was supposed that he was the father of Jesus. There's a parenthetical statement there. And that parenthetical statement is to tell us something, that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. And Luke makes that very clear because two verses earlier, God is speaking from heaven. What is he saying? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. God is the father of Jesus. So the parenthetical statement there within its context is not there for just no reason. It's there. Luke's giving us a clue. He's indicating something to us. And finally, this is extra biblical, but I think it counts. I think it matters. The Jewish Talmud, which kept accurate records of genealogies and obviously knew about Jesus and knew about uh, uh, his family as it was very relevant in the history, records for us that Mary from Nazareth's father was named Heli. So if we take that into an account, then that makes a lot of sense. But why is it saying that Heli is the father of Joseph? We still can't understand that. What, what seems to be the, what are we missing here? What are we not seeing? Well, again, context is key. Understanding the cultural and historical context of when the Bible was written helps us to understand these things. You see, in ancient Jewish culture, there was a custom that if a man had daughters and had no sons, when his daughter married, he would choose one of his sons-in-laws to adopt as his own son so that he could have an heir. Because in the ancient world, you did not pass down your heritage to your daughters. You would pass it down to the males. And so if you didn't have a son, whoever would be your son-in-law would become your heir and inherit your lineage, your heritage. And so therefore, it could very well be that Mary had no brothers, and it would make sense that, that if Joseph was Heli's son-in-law, that he would adopt him, making him his legal heir. This would then mean that Joseph's biological father was Jacob and follows Matthew's genealogy, giving us the legal claim to Christ being the son of David. And Heli is Joseph's adoptive father for Luke's genealogy, therefore showing us the greater aspect that not only does he have a... He also traces his way back to David, but a different way, and shows us that he is ultimately the bigger picture. He is a son of Adam, a son of God, one with us in the human race. There's another technicality here, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but I think it's important. And that is, when you look at the Greek text of this, the phrase, son of, Heli, skips Joseph and refers directly to Jesus. And when you look at each statement, the son of, the son of, the son of, the definite article the is used before each name. So, for example, the son of the David, the son of the Heli, the son of the Nathan. But when it comes to Joseph, there is no definite article used. With the parenthetical statement, it is reminding us of the virgin birth. Because Heli would be the next male in Jesus' line through Mary, it would then be, make sense that it would be said this way because if Luke is tracing Jesus' genealogy through Mary, 
he's not using the women's names in that genealogy. He's tracing it directly through male descendants back to Adam. I think this makes perfect sense. I think what we're seeing here is the line of Jesus through Mary. And, and, and we're showing that Jesus, both through Mary and through Joseph, has a biological claim and a legal claim to the kingdom of God. So see that? Genealogies do matter. They just take a little digging. What am I bringing this all to? Let me get back to where I started. It brings us to the point that Jesus Christ is our federal head. What stands out so important is that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. He was born under a woman under the law. He was born with the he was born to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. The son of God, who is well pleasing to the father and beloved by the father, had to also become a man, had to become a human being like you and me to become our representative to be our redeemer because he had to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. Adam as the first son of God was unique in every way. He had no mother and fathers created by God, but he sinned and he plunged the world into death and destruction. But through Christ now and through the and through understanding that he is one of us, that through his death and resurrection, all those who believe in him are now under a new federal head, a new human race. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 to 49. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. And just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, one of the objections we often hear to federalism is, well, why does Adam have to be my representative? I didn't choose him. He didn't get my vote. God chose him. Do you know why God chose Adam? Because God knew each and every one of us before we were even born. He knew what we would do if we were in the situation. And guess what? None of us would have done any better than Adam. Adam was our perfect representative because he did exactly what you and I would do. But then God chose his son, made a covenant with his son before the foundations of the world to send him into this world to be a perfectly obedient son, the perfect son of God. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Where Adam broke the law and violated God's commandment immediately and brought death, Jesus was always pleasing to the Father to the very end. Where Adam reached out to a tree to grab fruit that was forbidden, Jesus also went to the tree to bear our sins. Where Adam chose death and rebellion, Jesus chose obedience and life. And just as Adam's sin 
is imputed and credited to us. We must bear the guilt of that whether we like it or not. The good news is when you put your faith in Jesus that Christ's obedience and righteousness is imputed to you. So the saying in Scripture can be true. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore we are new creations in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We have entered a new creation. We are no longer connected to Adam, but merely by these physical bodies which will waste away one day and will be resurrected to new life with Christ. Do you know what the most beautiful thing I, I take away from all this is that in Adam, we're all enemies of God. We're separated. We're in rebellion. But in Christ, I love this word. Remember where God says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased I want you to listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. And I'm going to read it through the King James Version, Pastor Paul's favorite. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You see that we're in Christ, we have all spiritual blessings. And glory be to the Father and to the Son. Now this is according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace listen wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved God says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Now you and I are accepted by God in the beloved. We've received blessing upon blessing and it was nothing that you or I did. It was all what God did for us. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. He gets all the praise. We get nothing. But we get all the blessings. Where we get acceptance with God. Let me tell you this right now. You can't find acceptance with God on your own works. You could try harder and do more and work harder. And it will not get you one shred of acceptance with God. Because there's only one who's accepted by God. And that's the beloved son. And it's until you throw yourselves at the feet of Christ and he wraps you in his arms and adopts you into his family, out of the family of Adam and says, you are mine now. Then you are accepted in the beloved. But you cannot be accepted outside the beloved. And then when you are accepted the beloved, the beautiful thing is you and I are now beloved. God could say, this is my daughter in Christ. She's beloved. This is my son in Christ. She is beloved. None of this would have been possible if Jesus wasn't born a human being. He is the son of God and he's the son of Adam. 
perfect humanity, perfect deity in one, our perfect federal head. You do have a choice. And I say this, I say this with caution because we know that God is sovereign, but, but the choice is, I don't have a choice, I'm born in Adam, but God has given you another choice and that's Jesus Christ. You're either going to choose to continue in death and darkness or choose Christ and choose life and light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,